Mondays with Mosey. Welcome to a live recording of Mondays with Mosey, the newest podcast made by two dorky introverts in Santa Cruz, California. But today we're podcasting from the 2019 Regional Gathering of SFRM in Rohnert Park. I'm Mike. And I'm Josie. And we're Mosey. Our podcast is an eclectic mix of topics. Our first episode dealt with the nature of fear, and we have an episode on explained events. Today's podcast is an homage to the podcast My Favorite Murder, which features Petaluma native Karen Kilgariff. We're next door today in Rohnert Park. In the MFM podcast, the main topic is true crime, and true crime enthusiasts are referred to as murderinos. Now, don't be confused. A murderino isn't a person who thinks murder is cool. Murder is an extremely vile and violent act. But a murderino wants to understand how and why these things happen, hopefully to be able to avoid getting murdered themselves, and perhaps to help others do the same. So today, Mike's going to go first. So we're going to tell what are called hometown murders. Mike grew up in San Jose, California. I grew up in Santa Cruz, California. So Mike's going to tell us a story from San Jose. Take it away, Mike. Okay. So it's actually about the town of Campbell, which is a suburb of San Jose. It was once just unincorporated area just outside of San Jose. So it counts. This story is about James Dunham, the axe murderer of Campbell. James Dunham was an intelligent man, a college student, an orchardist, a bicycle aficionado and salesman. In his early 30s, he married Hattie Wells, the stepdaughter of wealthy society man and celebrated Civil War veteran Colonel Richard McGlincy. Sometime after the war, Colonel McGlincy settled in Campbell, at the time just a small farming community, as I said, and married a local widow, Ada Wells. Ada had two children from her deceased first husband, Hattie and Jimmy. The McGlincy property contained an orchard, as much of the unincorporated area surrounding San Jose did at the time. It was then known as the Valley of the Heart's Delight, instead of Silicon Valley. Wait, Silicon Valley? No, no, that is an unforgivable sin. Sorry, I knew that. I was just playing with you, Mike. (laughs) In fact, they lived just a couple of miles due south of another wealthy and interesting orchardist whose history I'm very well acquainted with, Sarah Winchester, creator of the famous Winchester Mystery House. But back to James Dunham. After briefly being engaged to James's brother, Hattie Wells decided to spend her life with James instead. The newlyweds lived in the McGlincy house, and James went to school at Santa Clara College, now Santa Clara University, a few miles up Santa Clara Las Gatas Road, which is now called Winchester Boulevard. In the late summer or early fall of 1895, Hattie became pregnant, and Dunham had a strange conversation with a classmate who was studying law. I'll discuss that later. In early May of 1896, their son was born. Nobody knows what caused the next turn of events. When the infant was less than a month old, on May 26th, his father would brutally murder everyone else in the house. Colonel McGlincy and Hattie's brother Jimmy were attending a meeting of the American Protective Association in downtown Campbell and would be returning home late. The American Protective Association was an anti-Catholic secret society. Anti-Catholic? Yeah, they were Protestant. Okay. So that's kind of creepy to begin with. While they were away, Dunham entered the house with an axe, went upstairs, and began arguing with Hattie. When the housemaid, Minnie Schlesser, came to investigate, 
Dunham killed her right in front of his wife by dropping the blunt end of the axe on top of Minnie's head as she entered the room. So he went upstairs to argue with his wife with an axe. Holding an axe, that's correct. Mm. I don't think his plans were good-hearted. I don't think his plans were an argument. (laughs) No, I don't think so. So he killed Minnie by smashing her head in with the blunt end, and then... With her body on the floor now, he turned the axe around and hacked at it several times with the sharp end. Gross. Yeah. Just making sure, I guess. Wait, with the blunt end? He started with the blunt end, smashed her head in, and then hacked at the now dead body, or dying at least, with the sharp end. After witnessing that horror, Hattie was killed too. Dunham twisted her head until her neck snapped. He then went downstairs and gave Hattie's mother, his mother-in-law, the same treatment he had given Minnie. He bashed her head in and then hacked up her body. About 11.30 p.m., Colonel McGlincy and Jimmy returned from their meeting. George Scheibel, I think that's how it's pronounced, a hired hand of the McGlincy's, had driven their carriage that night, and he took the horse to the barn to be put away for the evening. As they entered the house, McGlincy and Wells were ambushed. Dunham swung his axe and connected with his father-in-law's head, opening a gash. Colonel McGlincy temporarily went down, and Wells began to wrestle with Dunham. Two men wrestled with the axe, and Dunham was unable to get the axe back away from Jimmy grabbing it, so instead he let go, pulled out two pistols from his pockets, a 38 and a 45, and put several holes in Jimmy, killing him. The colonel had managed to get back on his feet by that time, and he escaped the house through a window, started running across the yard. Dunham gave chase out the doorway, and he shot McGlincy twice as he ran. And they finally met up in the entry of the Orchard Hands bunkhouse across the lot. McGlincy begged to be spared, but Dunham put several more rounds into him, finally killing him. A second hired hand, Robert Briscoe, was in the bunkhouse, had heard the gunshots, and witnessed these last few that killed McGlincy. Upon seeing his boss murdered in the doorway and his way out, he too leapt from a window only to be chased and shot down by Dunham. Meanwhile, the first hired hand, the one that drove the carriage, George Scheibel, had seen and heard the whole massacre from the hayloft of the barn, where he hid in the hay to avoid being found. So, like, he didn't call 911 in the middle of this? (laughs) No, I don't know why. Hmm, irresponsible. (laughs) So Dunham did go into the barn and look for Scheibel, but when he didn't find him, since he was hiding in the hay... He simply took one of the horses and fled. Aside from Scheibel in the hayloft, the only other person left alive on the ranch was James and Hattie's three-week-old son. Dunham was seen leaving the farm by locals who knew him, but they did not yet know what had happened, so they didn't stop him. The next day, Dunham was spotted and interacted with by two men near a place called Smith's Creek. I wasn't able to find it on maps, so I, okay. I don't think huh. it's called that anymore, but they say it was due east of Campbell, which would put it just south of downtown San Jose. Would it, could it be an offshoot of the Guadalupe? Maybe. Hmm. That's what I was thinking. Right. So, I'm just think, you know. trying to think what goes through that area now. Yeah. It's not likely to have shifted much. Yeah. Anyway, the two men that spotted him, they didn't know what had happened, but they could see that he was a little beaten and very bloody, and he had several socks over his shoes for some reason, perhaps to prevent from leaving tracks or, I don't know, some... I don't think the forensics in those days were checking shoe tread patterns, were they? I 
Not that I know of, but maybe. I'm going off of Johnny Depp's character in Sleepy Hollow. and maybe. <laughs> It could also just be that he was cold because he was running in the middle of the night. This all started during the 11 o'clock right. hour, although it was May. So Yeah, not usually cold in no. that area. Anyway, uh, they could see that he was disheveled, so not knowing what happened, they didn't know he was a fugitive, but they did think maybe they better tell someone. He told them he was headed to the San Joaquin Valley and asked the best way to get that way. The best way would have been along the creek, but they directed him up Mount Hamilton to stall him. So the police searched the area for several days, and they even used bloodhounds to try to track him. They did have that technology. They even Wait, used... they had dogs? They did have dogs. Okay. Yeah, they, they had they, been invented by then. They'd been invented. All right. What year was this? 18... 1896, did okay. I say? They invented, yeah, they invented them in the Civil War, I think. So. <laughs> we're good, we're good. Yeah, 1896. It only was invented in yeah, the Civil yeah. War. Yeah. <laughs> they even used the McGlincy family dog because he was known to be close with Dunham. Mm-hmm. And they thought that that dog would find him, but that dog didn't find him either. And while they were searching, they did find the horse that he had taken. It was very tired, so he left it behind. They also found a campsite that looks like where he spent the night. And at one point, the police heard a single gunshot. They theorized that maybe he had seen the police were hot on his trail and just ended it. But it was still an open case, and nobody was found. So they put up wanted posters all around the Bay Area. They got many reports some from states away and they even the local police even took cross-country trip to places like idaho and i think one of the dakotas and southern california to identify prisoners that were being held that were suspected to be dunham none of them turned out to be him the police heard a single gunshot and they theorized that maybe he killed himself when they were about to find him rather than face the music. Oh, I already said that they went to several states. Okay, no one turned out to be Dunham. Some people that had known Dunham claimed that they had seen him elsewhere. Some people said he went to Mexico. One man said that he encountered him on a ship that Dunham had stowed away onto that went around the Horn into New York and that he then got on another ship to Cuba. Okay. So that's one theory. Around all of South America? Yes. They didn't have the Panama Canal yet. Right, right. To New York City and then to... And then then back back down down to to Cuba. Or to Cuba. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, didn't we have the Transcontinental Railroad by then? But if he's trying to avoid being caught... Yeah. Okay. He was trying not to be seen and... that was better. Yeah. yeah. He's going to be seen by a few dozen, mostly men, if he's on a ship rather than hundreds and hundreds of people across many states by train. So whatever happened to him, nobody ever heard from him again. And he was never punished for his crimes, unless he punished himself by putting a bullet in his head. In the 1950s, a skeleton was found in the area where police had heard the gunshot. So that could be him, but it could not be positively identified as him. So we don't know. And we don't know if they kept the remains so like later you could do I don't, DNA testing or something i don't or, think yeah. they did okay. I, I don't think those exist to test today they probably buried the bones uh-huh. at, in, in an unmarked grave because sure. they didn't know who it was and probably limited records as to where that even happened so dunham's infant son was adopted renamed and raised by hattie's aunt and uncle so the kid's great aunt and uncle became his parents 
He must have been told at some point about the grisly events, as he claimed Hattie Wells as his mother when he filed for Social Security as a 60-year-old man in 1956. And the strange conversation I mentioned earlier that James Dunham had had with a fellow Santa Clara College student who studied law went like this. The student reported, quote, In that conversation, he asked me this question. Providing a man marries into a wealthy family and has issue, so has kids, it's not how we say it today, but mm-hmm. that's what he meant, and afterwards the entire family should die, would that child inherit the entire estate? I promptly replied yes. He then said, are you sure? And I remember that he accented the word sure and looked me straight in the eyes. I told him that was the rule of consanguinity. He then said, I'm glad of that. And then covered what he had just said by the further remark, I am glad of that as I intend to study law myself and am anxious to learn legal points. Right, and that's the most obvious thing to ask. Is yeah, that's like, to study law hello, or... fellow teenagers, I'm sure, right? right? Said by an old man. Yeah, I'm sure that's <laughs> a, a big question on the bar exam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please describe the, rule, the, of, yeah. the rule of consanguinity yes. via a family's mass murder. Yes, comes up a lot. <laughs> So that's the story of James Dunham, the axe murderer of Campbell, California. Yikes. All right. So Josie, what is your hometown? Okay. My hometown is in a totally different flavor. Mine is from 2015. This was a murder that I heard about as it took place in my hometown of Santa Cruz, California. This one, I, I heard about it contemporaneously. It was, it was all over the news. An odd coincidence is that the victim in this case shares the first name with the protagonist of the book that I have written and not yet released. And I had been writing this book for about 14 years at this point. Obviously not... Well in advance of this case. Right. So I'd named my my protagonist and some odd things happened throughout the, the years as I was working on my book where I would experience things that I had written in my story. For example, my character, her name's Maddie. She rides her bike around. She's a 14-year-old. And at one point in this very specific location in Capitola, which is in, I guess, the middle of Santa Cruz County, south of Santa Cruz, she stops along Portola Drive and the chain on her bike comes off and she has to put the chain on her bike back on. And so a few years ago, I rode my bike out to that same spot, which is not something that I normally do these days. It's not very close to my house. In fact, it was like a 16 mile bike ride. And I rode out there, I think, to meet up with family to go to dinner. And I happened to be at that same spot and the chain on my bike came off. Ooh. Yeah. So, and there were some other things like my character comes into contact with an injured baby bird. And I saw a baby bird fall out of a tree right in front of me, a very tall tree, and unfortunately witnessed the death of this bird. So creepy story off little slightly off topic. But anyway, so there was an element where it felt personal to me that this was a local girl who was murdered very tragically and shared her her first name with my character. And I think a part of me almost felt like I should rename my character. I don't want to disrespect this family. Another part of me honestly feels a little bit anxious is probably not the right word, but I want to avoid being disrespectful by just discussing this murder. So I want to be clear that when we say that we are interested in true crime, it's not in a grisly way it's not in a, a tabloid way right or, not yeah. in not being a voyeur being positive right victims families right and justice for the victim exactly All of this. so with that being said if you guys 
wouldn't mind um, joining me in just a moment of silence for Madison Middleton. Thank you. All right, so uh, take a moment myself. So Madison Middleton was an eight-year-old. She was a resident of Santa Cruz. She went missing on the afternoon of Sunday, July 26, 2015, where she lived with her mother in the Tannery Arts Complex, which is, as it sounds, it's a repurposed tannery, a leather tannery, that Mm. was made into what was meant to be an artist colony. And it's low-income housing. Um, Often people who who work in the arts don't make a large income, the starving artist, right? And it turns out that not 100% of the residents of the tannery turn out to be artists. Just part of the the rules around renting, low income, etc. They can't limit it to that. Exactly. Right. And that that does have some relevance to this story. I don't want to make it sound like if you're not an artist, you're a bad person. Clearly, <laughs> very often it's the... I don't want to say it's the opposite, but artists are often known to be... Artists um, can be marginalized. Sure. Because of their... Sure. And full disclosure, I am an art teacher. I have a degree in art, so I'm not going to badmouth artists. Anyway, so Madison Middleton was reported as last seen at the tannery at 4.12 p.m. on July 26th. I'm assuming that this means that that was when she was last reported seen by someone who knew her because at 5.07 p.m., they also report that she was, again, last spotted near mailboxes outside a parking garage on the ground floor, and this was captured on video surveillance. So I'm not 100% clear. I believe the parking garage is at the tannery. I've driven past from mm-hmm. Highway 1. I haven't gone into the complex, so I'm not 100% clear why they're listing these as two separate events, that she was last seen at 412 and then that she was last seen at 507. So slightly different things. But by 6.08 p.m., a 911 call was made to report that she was missing. So with Within less than two hours, she was reported missing. That night, the Santa Cruz police and Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office and a search and rescue teams and volunteers searched for her at the tannery. They also searched along the San Lorenzo River. The tannery is adjacent to the river and nearby beaches. So the tannery is probably a mile, mile and a half from Mm -hmm. the beach, I would say. Mile, mile and a half. Exactly. (laughs) Um, That's a hiker thing. Yeah. As many local residents joined the search and there was more attention in the media on Monday, they started to focus suspicion on the the creek and nearby Paradise Park, which I believe is a mobile home park. I'm not 100% clear. But also what they called the heroin highway along homeless encampments along the San Lorenzo River behind the complex. In fact, along the levee, Full disclosure, I am a sensitive person. I often pick up information if I ask a question, just generally to anybody the not universe. present. Yes, the universe. <laughs> I will usually get a response. So at this time, I you know, was somewhat distraught as a, a local person hearing this story. And I asked, I would just say I wondered where she might be. And they did send out an Amber Alert. And I, I've checked up on this a couple of times because... I usually think that when an Amber Alert is issued, they are referring to like a vehicle and a specific person, look out for this person, but mm-hmm. they didn't have any information like that. There wasn't any report of her having been abducted. So when I think of an Amber Alert, I'm thinking you're looking for this specific vehicle, here's the license plate, here's the person, but that wasn't a part of it. So for me, my sense, the feeling that I got in that situation was that she had not been abducted, that she was nearby. And I think... 
based on my own knowledge of the area, I was thinking that she was maybe not in the water in the river, but along the river somewhere. So that was the sense that I got where she was mm. nearby, okay. you know, more like check the river. And obviously they were checking it. So there's a quote from her mother, Laura Jordan. She told the local ABC 7 station, quote, she was riding her brand new scooter. It was a white razor. She had a black helmet on. She was wearing a purple dress and she was just as happy as she can be riding around. She also went on to say she's never gone into the woods and she knows she's not supposed to go down to the creek by herself. People asked if she hides and she doesn't do that. On Monday night, the police discovered her body. She was hidden in a recycling bin inside the same apartment building from which she went missing, so she never left. And this was how long after she was reported missing? So she was reported missing Sunday. Yeah, it was just, it was the next evening, so about 24 hours later, I guess. Um, Hmm. I don't have a time. It just says Monday night. So yeah, she she was last seen at 4.12, so maybe less than 30 hours, I guess. So then the the second shot came when police arrested one of the residents, a 15-year-old. And I guess I'll say his name. It's all over the media. It's not a secret. His name was Adrian A.J. Gonzalez. So the neighbors were obviously upset. At first, they thought it must have been an accident and not intentional, a childish game gone wrong. A neighbor was quoted saying that we heard it was possibly a horrible accident, that something went all wrong. That's what people always want to believe, right? Right, right. I mean, when you hear it's a neighbor when it's a kid, in this case, a 15-year-old, nobody wanted to believe that. His mother was in extreme shock. I mean, she was absolutely distraught. Uh Obviously, the neighbors. Another connection that I have to this murder was there were three people living at the tannery at the time who I knew. One was a member of the organization that we, that all of us belong to, and two were parents of students that I had taught at a charter school years before, and I saw them on the news, I saw them posting on social media, just all the residents of the tannery, this was their daughter. I mean, they this was their very tight-knit community, so they were all in extreme shock. But by Wednesday, so two days later, the Santa Cruz District Attorney announced that they were charging this kid as an adult, not only for murder, but also for kidnapping and sexual assault. And so the details are Ugh. really, the details are really grisly. Basically, what was found out was he invited her to his apartment. I believe I recall that she'd been there before. I mean, this is someone who she mm-hmm. knew, but he told her she, there was ice cream. What they found later was that he tied her up, he beat her, he raped her, and he strangled her before eventually dumping her body in the recycling bin in the parking garage downstairs. But what I have read since then is that before transporting her to the recycling bin, he actually bent her over. They describe it as a jackknife. She was still alive, and he put her in a trash can. So a small trash can. She was still alive. She was still breathing at this point. And later put her in the recycling bin. A.J. Gonzalez had worked as a counselor at the tannery. He was known for his yo-yo tricks. Another neighbor is quoted as saying, we love this guy, all of us. If you ask us what we think of him, we tell you he's an outstanding kid. He was our poster child. Another neighbor said he's just like a normal kid. He hangs out on the levee with other normal kids and plays with his yo-yo all day long. He doesn't really strike any chords as being a baby killer. But then you have his social media posts. And the social media posts suggest that he was deeply troubled. He had an Instagram account, which was disabled later after threats to him. His Instagram account revealed possible suicidal impulses. The Mercury News reported that among the Instagram portraits of him outside the tannery and showing off yo-yo tricks 
in an apartment were other darker pictures and commentary, and most chilling was a post from Monday, the second day of the search and the day Maddie's body was found, that showed a short black and white clip of hands playing a piano to the tune of Gary Jewell's version of Mad World, popularized on the soundtrack of 2001's Donnie Darko, a film signified by the title character's death dreams. Underneath the clip was a caption pulled from the song, quote, the dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. So they're, they're saying that this was footage of him or someone else playing Odes to Suicide on the piano. When he was posting this, all these volunteers, hundreds of volunteers were outside his apartment desperately searching for Maddie. Mm-hmm. I've met people that were in that search. Did, have you? Yeah, it's terrible. And it says he allegedly disposed of her body just five minutes before her mother called the police on Sunday. So they caught him on surveillance video, dumping the body at the bin and then visiting the spot twice, as people often do. Mm -hmm. And he repeatedly asked police if they were making any progress. Another neighbor said that AJ kept pestering him with questions about the search for Maddie's body. And his response was, dude, you're the only one asking me. Oh, creepy. Yeah. So when the police did finally find Maddie's body, AJ was standing nearby watching. Okay, so shortly after her body was found in a recycling dumpster at the Tannery Arts Center, AJ made a confession, including statements that the attack lasted a half hour. Later, autopsy reports did not contradict his statements, and he is accused of luring her with ice cream, attacking and choking her from behind before attacking her. So that was 2015. It's 2019. He was 15 then, so he's he is an adult now. They're still going through... The trial sent, I don't believe he's been sentenced yet, but he's tried as an adult. There are reports from the coroner talking to her body as they autopsied her. And this is the the coroner found out that she had died after being folded in the kitchen garbage can in a jackknife position. After this happened, I mean, this, obviously this, this happened very quickly. The, the report of her disappearance and then discovering her body and the confession. It's taken years as these things often move slowly we had a, a candlelight vigil down on West Cliff Drive overlooking the ocean that I participated in. Oh, and here's the kicker. Motive. So he told police that he'd been considering suicide and he wanted to see how people would react to him killing a girl. Oh, God. So, I mean, we never want anybody to, to kill themselves. I'm a teacher. You don't want a 15-year-old to kill themselves. But, no. You know, but given the... Yeah. If this is his... Right. But if if you're having suicidal ideation before you kill someone else, you know, get help. Yeah. But if it doesn't work, if you're if you gotta kill someone, kill yourself. I'm not encouraging suicide. No. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. don't kill someone else first. Yeah. Someone else is not your problem. No. Someone else is never your problem. No. Yeah, yeah, this didn't fix it for him. And, you know, if, if he really wanted to die, you know, going through a long, drawn-out court process isn't it. I, you know, you wonder as a as a 15-year-old kid. I teach kids up to 14 years old, and I will say they're not adults. I'm going to say a 15-year-old's not an adult. I, I don't know how I feel about trying a 15-year-old as an adult. I understand the outrage from the community. I would never second-guess her own family's feelings on this, and I, in no way would I ever mean to condemn i guess the community's desire to try this person as an adult he is now an adult i don't know to have kids get into the situation where this is their choice that they make 
I believe he was also living with a single mother. And as I mentioned earlier, not everyone were artists, and I don't believe that his mother or, or he were part of the artist community specifically. But I'm not suggesting that that's in any way why this murder happened. Mm-hmm. Just that that's, that's a fact that, that exists. Wherever this kid was... There's a dog outside our hotel room. <laughs> Wherever this kid was, he he would probably have been exploring those feelings, mm-hmm. right? So right. it, it doesn't not, have to do with the place or sure. the exact community. Exactly the, it's his, the way he was feeling and his how he reacts to life. Unfortunately, there are kids that young that will still kill. Mm-hmm. Right, it's not an isolated event. It's not certainly. an isolated event. There's just a lot of other stuff going on in that kid's life, and it's sad. So, this other person you've heard speaking, we didn't introduce at the beginning. Oh, hey. Hi, Jen. Hi. Hey, Jen. Hello. So, Jen Storm Alves is our first guest on Mondays with Mosey. Oh, my gosh. I'm a distinguished first guest. Yeah, you are our first official guest. So, Jen is a fellow murderino. Yes. That's right. Take it away, Jen. Okay. (laughs) She's got a story of her own. I'll introduce myself then. So, uh, I'm Jen Storm Alves. I'm a fellow murderino living in Northern California now, but a native of the Cleveland area. And I'm just wondering, I'm guessing that most of the audience is familiar with the Dr. Sam Shepard case. Are you familiar mm. with Dr. Sam Shepard? I've I've heard him discussed on my favorite murder. He's been discussed on MSN. It sounds familiar, but I may be thinking of the astronaut Sam Shepard. And isn't there an actor Sam Shepard, or am I making Maybe that? that's who I'm thinking of. Well, I think there's an astronaut too. I don't know. <laughs> there could, there could yeah. be both. There could be all of these. Yeah. yeah. But there's maybe also Sam Shepard. Yeah. <laughs> well, and maybe what you're considering or thinking of is that Dr. Sam Shepard. This particular case that I'm talking about, the murder of his wife, Marilyn Shepard, was the inspiration for the movie The Fugitive. Oh. Does that ring a bell? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. The Fugitive rings a bell. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Sam Shepard was from Bay Village, Ohio, which is a wealthy suburb of Cleveland, about 10 or 15 miles west of Cleveland, right on the lake. Super nice area. I'm Um, now remembering the astronaut is Alan. It's Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. But there's a lot of astronauts from Ohio, so we'll forgive you. Right, yeah. We have, you know, John Glenn and every. uh, Anyway. So, uh, Dr. Sam Shepard was at one point convicted and then later exonerated from the murder of his wife, Marilyn Shepard, in her July 4th, 1954 murder. And they lived in a very well-to-do suburb west of Cleveland, about 10-15 miles west of Cleveland, right on the lake. It's where all of our professional athletes live. So all the basketball players, all the football players, they all have huge mansions right Mm. on the lake in Bay Village, Ohio. And although I was not from Bay Village, I went to high school in the suburb right next to it, which is Rocky River. And Rocky River is very similar. I mean, the two are, you know, really small communities well-to-do, lots of doctors, professionals, athletes, etc. It's right on the lake. It's it's very it's good real estate, etc. 
Um, so this story is the story of Amy Mahalovic. And Amy Mahalovic is, well, okay, so I'm, let's, let's hold our moment. Josie had a moment of silence, and uh, I would like to have a moment of silence for Amy, and I'll tell you my personal connection. So let's have a moment of silence for Amy. And as I was putting this together for this episode, I realized later, or I realized earlier when I was doing this, that this happened in October of 1989. And so there's a, a recent podcast that was just, uh, that just came out that's called Amy Would Have Been 40. So when Amy oh. disappeared in 1989, she was 10. And this was 30 years ago. So wow. we were we're literally like a couple of weeks out from from then. So mm-hmm. this was 30 yeah. years ago and she would have been 40. Meaning, you know, like I'm five years older than that. So anyway, I'll, I'll get into this, the story of that. Okay, so this is the story of Amy Mahalovic. She came from a quiet, well-to-do suburb, as I mentioned, west of Cleveland, overlooking Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. Idyllic, just, you know, a mix of modest homes well-groomed homes and then along lake avenue nice big mansions overlooking the lake just real quiet place no big box stores just all small boutique places out of the way you know kind of little suburb and i should credit the amazing journalist the investigative journalism of james renner who has done quite a bit in all of this so james renner is a cleveland Akron area journalist who was a Bay Village contemporary of Amy's and he's gotten quite a bit of well he's done quite a bit of work toward finding justice for her so uh, okay he's worthy of following on Twitter he's really really good he's been working decades to, to get justice for her so as I mentioned 30 years ago this is when everything happened so Amy was 10 in October of 1989 she was a middle schooler of course at the same time, I'm a sophomore in high school. I was in high school literally a couple of miles over in the next suburb in Rocky River. And like Rocky River, Bay Village was the same kind of, you know, upper class type of quiet neighborhoods, yacht club, right on the lake. Everyone knows everyone kind of place. Mm-hmm. One afternoon, Amy is leaving school and she's walking home as she always does. And she's running to catch up with her friend Olivia. And she's like, hey, Olivia, can I walk with you? Can I walk home with you? Can I walk with you? And Olivia says, you never walk this way. Okay, you know, I mean, walk with me. And so they walk. And Olivia doesn't quite understand why, but they they get to a place where it's a shopping plaza and there's a Baskin Robbins. You know, a kid thing, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to go to ice cream. This is Bay Village. So... Amy stays at the Baskin Robbins and she's like, I'll be right here. I'm meeting a friend. And Olivia doesn't think anything of it and she goes on her way. So another friend named Maddie comes upon. Another Maddie. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, and, another. And ice cream. Mm-hmm. Another Maddie and another ice cream. So Maddie sees Amy from a distance and also sees a group of, you know, fifth grade boys because they're fifth grade sort of calling to Amy and just wants to make sure they're not picking on her. So she's in a distance and she's just kind of keeping an eye on things. And and then the boys go and Amy's still kind of hanging outside the, the ice cream place. And then Maddie sees the man drive up. Hmm. 
And the man gets out of the car, and the man is wearing a beige windbreaker with like a plaid lining, and he's wearing pressed khakis and a button-down shirt. And he looks pretty normal. Mm-hmm. And it could be Amy's dad. Sure. Yeah, Mandy doesn't know. The man approaches Amy and leans down, whispers something in her ear, puts his arm around her shoulder, and leads her away. Sounds like he knew her. Sounds like they, he Yeah. Well, to Maddie, uh-huh. she thinks it's her dad. Right. She doesn't know. She doesn't know Amy's dad. Uh-huh. She thinks it's her dad. Okay. Doesn't think any much of it. That's the last time anyone sees Amy alive. So this is October of 1989. Flash forward to the beginning of February 1990. Amy is down in a field right off the road, not very far off the road, in about 50 miles away from Bay Village in rural Ashland County, Ohio, in New London. Mm-hmm. And she's missing some items. She's missing her earrings. She's missing her school bag. She's missing her boots and uh-huh. shoes. But other other than that, she's, you know, other, other stuff is there. Her underwear has blood indicating sexual assault. She's been stabbed. That's mm. the manner of death. Uh-huh. Now, was she in the, the outfit that she was last seen in? Yeah, otherwise okay. she was in the outfit, but okay. she was missing certain things, the, the earrings, the backpack, the boots. Okay. But she was dressed otherwise, and she had blood mm-hmm. in her underwear. Her fingernails were chipped. So according to, of course, you know, investigators, they believe she put up a fight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now, in the course of investigation, there's been hundreds of suspects. There's been hundreds of leads. They come across the idea that she's been called by someone. She's been called by a man on the phone, contacted by phone, telling her, your mom's been promoted at work, and I'm a friend of your mom's at work, and I'll help you find a gift for her. So What an odd... Yeah, what an odd reason kind of, right? to contact her. They, they called her by phone. Girl. Somehow she gets the phone call. At home? At, I guess, because this is 1989. Right. There's no cell phones. Yeah, so that's who she was meeting at the ice cream shop? She was meeting a friend. A friend that's what she of told her, her mom's who said her the mom was promoted. The friend that she was walking home with Olivia said that she was meeting this friend. Uh-huh. And then in the course of investigation, everyone said, well, you know, she was called by this, this man called and said, he's a friend of her mom's, her mom had been promoted at work. And was that true that her mom had been promoted or this is a story? This is a story. Okay. This is all a story. Huh. You know, don't tell your mom. It's a surprise okay. kind of thing. I see. Yeah. Yeah. It was all just a thing to get. And the, and the craziest thing is, is the day that she went missing was the day that a rookie Bay Village police officer had been assigned to go to her school and do the whole stranger danger talk uh-huh. with, her cra- with her whole class. So she had just done that. And this poor, I mean, you know, it's just like this cop is like, I was just there. I just did the stranger danger talk. So she got the talk. She got the talk that same day. Wow. But she was convinced that this guy was. Yeah. And she had, she had already made the arrangements. Right. And, yeah. 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 I mean, you can't blame her. No, no, but, you can't blame her. But it's but she's, it's she's ten and terrible she's like, that yeah. it didn't make her think twice. So probably in her mind, this isn't a stranger on the street. This is someone who knows her mother, who mm-hmm. is right. So that makes them safe. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's horrific. It's just awful. So um, just wasn't driven home who a stranger is. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
just she didn't get that message somehow. Yeah. Well, and if he's nicely dressed and looks like he fits in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. there's that, that aspect yeah. as well. Right. So obviously, you know, the the witnesses, her friends mm-hmm. that saw this happen, you know, were able to give the description to the police along with, you know, he had sort of like this full bushy hair. So he was wearing this outfit. He had this full bushy hair. Um, he was wearing glasses. And they were able to get a sketch. So there's been hundreds and hundreds of suspects. There's been a lot of leads. The one that stands out, and they, this is unsolved still. Um, so it happened in 1989, and then it got hot again in like 2006. So in 2006, the neighboring suburb, North Olmsted, which happens to be where my mom lives, mm-hmm. um, North Olmsted police was able to connect with Bay Village police to say, you know, hey, around the same time of the Mihaljevic case, we had three girls here that had similar calls that were called by a male saying that they knew the mother. But they didn't make this connection for years? They didn't make the connection, no, because at the time, Police departments aren't really working. Yeah. Right? Well, and these did, these girls just received a call. They, they received a call. Else there wasn't anything else. No, they didn't. They didn't take action. They didn't go out like Amy did. Mm-hmm. So whatever happened, they didn't. They didn't do it. Whether it was, you know, I, who knows. But there were three people that came forward in 2006 saying, "Yeah, I got a call from this person saying my mom was promoted, and will you, you know, I can help you shop for." A, against mm. for her basically to lure them wow out. that's crazy i know and so that just came forward in 2006 so now we're talking what 17 years later right mm-hmm. and then more leads came in in 2013 so apparently so they've had hundreds of leads and hundreds of suspects and the one that they keep coming back to is a man named dean runkle mm-hmm. and with dean runkle they don't have dna on him yet as far as we know but dean runkle has ties to both both areas. So Dean Runkle is the leading suspect in the whole thing. And Dean Runkle went, I'm going to show you guys the picture of what Dean Runkle looks like. Or what the sketches look like, rather. This is the okay. sketch. Okay. That's what we're Pretty looking. creepy looking. He's, he's, he's a creep. Yeah. Why are there two sketches? One with glasses and one without. But I mean, basically, the but same. they are. But, but, but if you look at them, they are different sketches. Like the they didn't just add glasses to one sketch. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Right. So I think there was the the girl, the one Maddie had one sketch, and I think the boys maybe had another sketch, or there were other mm-hmm. things with Dean Runkle that they got sketches from. So he's a leading suspect. They can't pin him with DNA. In 2003, things started to heat up again before the 2006 thing with the girls from North Olmsted that mm-hmm. came forward with similar stories about this. So I have a question. Yeah. They have the sketch, have the but sketch. you make a sketch when you don't even know who the person, what their name is or anything. How did they connect it to this Dean Runkle? just like him. So there's a couple of Just things. people it recognized looks, him from the sketch? People were recognizing okay. him from the sketch. And in 2003, he actually left Ohio because things were starting to heat up against him and moved to Florida. So he was a teacher. Okay. He was even a teacher. And hmm. um, he had students, like female students, coming forward saying he was a total creep and he was doing this and that. And he would, like, leer at me and he would do all these, you know. So, mm-hmm. pe- like, female students were not feeling super 
happy in his in his presence to be yeah. so so he goes to florida in 2003 2006 now we've got these other stories of these other girls and things further heated up in 2013 and i think they're getting close with familial dna with with mitochondrial dna they're mm. going to get him eventually you, I mean, they will because it's active it's an right. active case you watch the tv shows and you think it's so easy to get dna i mean you know about things like your garbage when it's on your right on your street it's abandoned and is the yeah or, the or they'll stake out a regular diner that the person goes to and grab right. a glass right yeah but but in 1989 not that's really still a that new easy concept it's still a new like they yeah. you know they they gathered the dna uh-huh. and so yeah it's now it's a matter of getting it you know we don't know what else he's done between now and then. So, and did they have DNA from her? I mean, were they? Did they collect? They did another person's DNA, so they have something to match it to. We we think they did. We think they did. It's 1989, so it's kind of like right on the the, mm-hmm. the thing of it. But yeah, you know. But they noticed she had clipped fingernails, so I'm pretty sure they uh-huh. grabbed the you know whatever of her fingernails uh-huh. left to get whatever DNA was mm-hmm. left in her and all that kind of. And then they had some other evidence that was there, some stuff that indicated like her. Uh, fibers on a blanket mm-hmm. where the person tried to hide her body when you know because the, the body was found right off the road uh-huh not not real well hidden and that's the other thing about dean runkle i didn't mention so uh dean runkle was in bay village around the time of these but he was also but he also grew up in a farmhouse less than two miles from where her body was dumped mm-hmm. so he had ties to that area as well and that's kind of weird if you're from Bay Village, you don't usually have ties to Ashland County. That's the country. Okay. Uh-huh. That's the country. It's only 50 miles, but in Ohio, that's the country. Yeah. And so, you, like, you don't, you know, you're in Cleveland or you're in the country. Yeah. So it was kind of unusual, and it was it was a little too close to home. So Dean Runkle becomes a really good suspect. Mm-hmm. Right. And he still is. And, you know, all the sketches look like him. So they, they're just trying to work on tying it to him. So don't know if that's ever going to happen, but he's sort of the leading suspect. I'm not here to say that he is the suspect. Mm-hmm. Right. He's the leading suspect. We don't suspect. know that he did it. Right. No. As of just 2008, he kind of looks a like A lot of this. things mm-hmm. point you know. to him. Right. A lot, of, a lot of things point to him, whether or not it's him or not. Like I said, still unsolved. Um, but she, this case... Uh, and I don't know if I even said this when I got into the beginning of it, I knew her babysitter. Mm. So I was in high school, I was a sophomore in high school when Amy Maholovic was kidnapped and murdered. I was a sophomore, one town over, literally, like less than five miles from where she was abducted, maybe three miles. Mm-hmm. And so I knew her babysitter and this hit home, I mean, so close, so close to me. Although I kind of got into true crime, I want to say sixth grade, Silence of the Lambs, kind of got the juices mm-hmm. going. <laughs> but this, but this particular murder was so close to me and so close to like people that I knew, that it really got me into true crime. So this was Amy Maholovic is the thing, and now we're talking about her thirtieth anniversary. Right. And it's really, you know, this is a big thing in Ohio. It was one of the very first cases on America's Most Wanted also so this has been like a big john walsh thing as well it's a fascinating story yeah Yeah. it's it's really interesting it's terrible it's 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 very it's terrible i hope they get who did it Mm -hmm. they whether it's that guy or not i know they will 
they they will get it with uh, familial mitochondrial DNA, just like they've been getting, you know, Joseph mm-hmm. Naso, Golden State Killer, all of these other yeah. people. They're getting them slowly but surely. The DNA is going to catch up and get them. And we we think this is going to be one of those same cases. James Renner thinks the same thing. So I think we're going to get justice for her. Good. Let's hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Well, that's my hometown. Three stories in two of them. Children died horribly. Yeah. I would like to point out that in mine, the child lived. <laughs> that's that's the positive. That's the good news. Yeah. And we're glad. We're glad. And, and lived to be old enough to collect Social Security when it became a thing. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yay for socialism. Yes. Yay, socialism. <laughs> but yeah, awful stuff. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jen, so much. Thank you. Yeah. Say so this has been fun. This has been horrifying yeah. and and enlightening. All right. Anyways. Well, thank you, our first guest, Jen. Yeah. Thanks for letting me yeah. be your first guest. And our our yes. silent guest, Katie, who's just yeah. sat in the wings here. Hi, Katie. Hi. <laughs> okay. Alrighty. Well, I think that ties it up. That's a wrap. All right. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night. Normally at this point in the podcast, we would regale you with some silly jokes, but that didn't feel right for this topic. At this point instead, I will leave you with this poem and a small bit of music. Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep by Mary Elizabeth Fry. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sun on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you waken in the morning's hush, I am the swift, uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child sometimes i feel like a motherless child sometimes i feel like a motherless child a long way from home, a long way from home. True believer, a long way from home, a long way from home. If you made it this far, we really appreciate you listening, and we promise that our next episode will be less disturbing. Please find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are Mondays with Mosey. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and tell your friends, tell your enemies, and tell your frenemies. You can email us at mondayswithmosey at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your positive feedback, bad, clean jokes, and for this episode, stories of tragedy, intrigue, or infamy from your hometown. For now... Be smart, watch out for murderers, and be nice to your neighbors.